Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone. Welcome to New Books in Sociology, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Ritipana Padgiri, and today I'm going to be in conversation with Uddipana Goswami. Uddipana Goswami is a writer, writing instructor, and feminist peace researcher. She teaches writing workshops and courses in three countries across two continents, in India, the USA, and Canada. As an academic, she has taught writing and liberal arts at the Tata Institute of Social Sciences, India, Gohati College, India, University of Pennsylvania, USA, Curtis Institute of Music, USA, and the John Hopkins University, USA. Dr. Goswami is the author of seven books, including an academic book, Conflict and Reconciliation, The Politics of Ethnicity in Assam, Rutledge 2014, and a collection of short stories set against the violent conflicts in Northeast India, No Ghost in This City, published by Zuban in 2014. A former journalist and editor, Dr. Goswami worked with several multinational and hyper-local media groups from National Geographic Channel to Seven Sisters Post. Her latest book, Gendering Peace in Violent Peripheries, Marginality, Masculinity and Feminist Agency, published by Rutledge in 2023, derives from her Fulbright postdoctoral research at the University of Pennsylvania, USA. Today, we will be discussing this book in our conversation. Uddipana, I welcome you to this discussion. Welcome. Thank you so much, Ritupana. I'm very happy to be here. Right. So let me begin by asking you about your main motivation behind writing this book. Ah, okay. So if I were to talk about motivation, I have to talk about anger because, uh, you know, this book actually started from a place of anger. When I was working for my first book, um, Conflict and Reconciliation, which you mentioned in the uh, introduction, I, um, I saw that women were participating in all the social movements that were happening in Assam and in Northeast India, where my uh, studies are located. And I saw how much they contributed. I, I, I could see that I, they told me about their hopes for the future. And, you know, it was, uh, they had amazing roles to play in all these movements. But um, when the treaties were signed, um, you know, when the fruits of conflict were being redistributed, 
these women were really nowhere to be seen on the public platforms of political reconstruction and reconciliation. So that got me thinking, you know, like all politics and all wars, of course, ethno-nationalist conflicts are also men's wars. Uh, it is the men who set the agenda. They decide the course. They decide the trajectory. They bring in the actors. They use the women as force multi multipliers. Uh, they can't do without the women. Right? And, uh, but, but then they won't let them into any of the decision making. And when the elections came, uh, the rebels who, who are now you know, taking over the government or are creating a new government, uh, they have a chance to participate in the affairs of the state and make a difference. Uh, there were no women or very few token women. So, um, you know, I, I felt like the women were left without agency, they were marginalized, and, and I thought that the women were okay with it. You know, it, it felt like they were complicit in their own marginalization because I spoke, uh, for example, I was, I was working on conflict uh, and reconciliation again, my earlier book. And the elections to the first elections to the Borland Territorial Council um, was being held, and no women were, uh, you know, allowed to fight the elections. And I asked them, and they said, "Oh, but we've been financially compensated." So, like I said, anger, you know, and. This anger was, I think, uh, one of the reasons why I applied for the Fulbright, uh, and that is why I went to the U.S. I gave myself some physical distance uh, from my field, and uh, I, I needed to take a critical look at this and, and to process my anger. And, and I'm glad that I did that because, you know, uh, when I was reflecting from the distance, I was looking through my field notes, reevaluating them, recalibrating my stance, a very different story emerged, actually. And, and I realized that I was, what I was doing was I was looking at the margins from outside in. You know, even though I was in the field, I, I, I was working on this book uh, on gendering peace while I was in Assam for uh, about five years at the time. And I was with the women, I was among them, um, talking to them, um, you know, and uh, engaging with them. But... I was still looking at them as an outsider and I had to look beyond my privileges. I had to understand my own positionality before I could really understand what this complicity was all about. You know, what was it? Was it really complicity? Um, were they actually silenced and without agency or had I really missed something? So I started asking these questions uh, as I was doing my postdoctoral research at uh, the University of Pennsylvania. And um, my study evolved into a broader exploration of gendered power, not, not just women's agency, you know, gendered power in conflict areas. So how can women have agency or can they, you know, in a society where there are these hyper-masculinist structures which enable different kinds of violence every day, uh, political violence, personal violence, um, from you know, intimate partner violence to genocide and ethnic cleansing. And I saw that it was all connected and, and I had to extricate myself from this web of interconnection. 
And I had to look at it from the outside in order to gain that uh, broader perspective. And um, you know, being away from a son helped, like I said. So I examined this and um, this, this larger matrix of hypermasculinist violence. I found myself drawn to looking at not just the women, but other marginalized entities in the conflict zone, for example, uh, the migrant Muslims. So a large part of the book also looks at them, their agency, lack of it, their interaction with the web of violence, and how all these marginalized entities were making change, making peace, because they were and, and they are. Um, and, uh, you know, I found that um, this kind of peace can only happen if you work together. It's slow peace, it's slow change, but it's also sustainable and organic. Right, you do talk about anger. So I would also want to ask you about, you know, your methods, your sources, as well as the field side that you, you know, explore in this book. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, the methods and the emotions all go together. And that's because um, I um, relied, this book relied very heavily on feminist uh, research methods. So the book is about positive peace. It's about social transformation. And uh, feminist research, by definition, is also oriented towards supporting social justice and social transformation. So since, uh, you know, since the time I started um, working immersively in the conflict areas of Assam, I have um, relied on ethnography as a method. Um, you know, I, I feel it's, it's a method that is most suited for the conflict zone because you cannot program it. And, and uh, you cannot, uh, working in a field uh, area where you have, uh, you know, these... Uh, violences, these conflicts happening every day, you have to be prepared for the sudden and the unexpected. So I chose ethnography. And my field work was um, all over some really, but um, I also took uh, occasional excursions to, say, uh, Manipur or Nagaland, um, other states in Northeast India. And um, Within Assam, I've uh, been researching mostly in the Boroland Territorial Autonomous Districts. Uh, well, they, they were renamed as the Boroland Territorial Re Region in 2020, as you know. And then um, since 2004, I have been uh, you know, going to Boroland. And then uh, there are the Twin Hill Districts of the Mahasau and Karbiyanglong as well. So. Um, the period of time, um, the fieldwork for this book was um, spread out over six years, approximately, from 2011 to 2016, and briefly in 2020. And um, however, I must say that a lot of my uh, field experience also draws from the research that I conducted uh, in the region since 2004 in the course of my earlier studies especially uh, for my earlier book, Conflict and Reconciliation. So, um, you know, um, as somebody who is working on uh, peace and conflict, if um, conflict is where home is, you know, ethnographic fieldwork becomes both difficult 
and also easy. It's easy because you're familiar with the field. You know, you have uh, kind of an empathetic understanding for the field. You have familial relations. Uh, you have uh, friendly networks, which is also an asset. Um, all of this, you know, helps you identify um, specific pockets of conflict where you can do your field work, but then you also know how to, um, you know, uh, get out of there quickly if that's what was required. But I found that the difficulty was uh, too much ease and too much familiarity sometimes because, you know, emotional connections um, often jeopardize the processes by which a researcher acquire, acquires the the, the intellectual distance, you know, that you need for critical evaluation. So uh, using feminist approaches uh, to knowledge making and research helped me sort of reconcile you know, these two seemingly opposite but very intricately connected positions. So in your research, do you also think that your positionality, you know, played any role, primarily because within social anthropological as well as, you know, sociological research, today we are talking about positionality. Oh, yes, definitely. That was central to my research. So, you know, in my case, I was, um, when I was growing up in Assam and uh, most of, uh, I, I grew up here during the conflict years, and then I spent most of my adult life um, away from home. Um, this was the 1990s, you know, the peak of conflict, and uh, most fam families in Assam who could uh, afford it, they sent their children away to study on the mainland, to pursue their careers there. And, you know, the fact that the, the infrastructure and opportunities there were better than in the uh, periphery also uh, helped, right? And um, I belonged to that generation of children who grew up during the worst of the conflicts, like I said, and then we were sent away to the mainland uh, with the, these, these uh, you know, specters of violence which were haunting us. And um, this, I think, physical distance, this physical distance brought some kind of, some amount of reflexivity with it. So when we were at home, there was always that seduction of ultranationalism, of, uh, you know, militant nativism, and, and that kind of characterized, um, you know, our years of adolescence and growing up. But scholarship exposure to critical literature and thought, all of that uh, away from home, it, um, you know, and, and all of this was in an atmosphere of relative peace. So that's kind of instilled in us uh, a new understanding of the troubles back home. So when we were on the mainland, we were um, reimagining historical kinship ties. We were inventing new ones away from the homeland. There were new communities of belonging that were being uh, forged across ethnic boundaries, new solidarities were developing. And, and these were often at odds with what was happening back home in the conflict situation. So when I started look, looking at this, this, uh, this ambivalence, I, um, wanted to, uh, I felt this desire to revisit my roots and then to look at it critically. So ethnography, uh, like I said earlier, became inevitable and feminist ethnography specifically helped me engage critically with this, uh, you know, this, this position of being both the insider and outsider having this ethic and emic perspective. 
and um, like all feminist uh, academic endeavors in my book also, I am totally transparent about my positionality, who I am, why am I doing this work, you know, uh, because objectivity and subjectivity need not be at war with each other. They, they, they can serve each other. And that is the feminist understanding. And in any case, uh, you know, ethnography is ethnographic truths are always partial truths, right? The ethnographer may aim to be objective, but the truths are always partial. And this is true of both insider and outsider research. So as, uh, again, feminist scholarship believes, all knowledge is situated knowledge. It is subjective, it is power imbued, it is relational. So yes, you know, I, I study what I'm familiar with. My emotions play a crucial role in this uh, study. And uh, I already said how I started from a place of anger, and I say that in my book too, and I tra trace the entire trajectory of my emotional and critical engagement with my research problems and questions. So this, this, this uh, binary you know, between the rational and the emotional stands completely rejected, and um, feminist research projects often... Um, you know, they often uh, talk about uh, actually bringing the women's lives uh, into the, the researchers' lives into their research. So I use a lot of, um, uh, not a lot of, uh, you know, some autoethnographic vignettes from my own life and from my biography in the conflict zone and my own experience with and my, my, my witness of the violence, uh, you know, and the conflict to outline the development of my ideas. So, um, if you read my book, the uh, most of uh, the much of the introductory chapter of the book is dedicated to this discussion. So, yeah, uh, reflexivity is very important here. Awareness of positionality is very important, and uh, this is where I feel feminist ethnography diverges from classical ethnography. Uh, so, uh, of course, you know, you bring up feminist ethnography and therefore, if you could also talk a little bit about the role that it plays in your own research. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so uh, that, uh, thank you for that question, because I have, uh, you know, I've thought about that a lot and I found that uh, feminist ethnography and reflexivity, like I already said, they really go hand in hand, right? And, and I've, I've, constantly used uh, reflexivity as a tool in my research. So um, reflections into my own positionality and biography, like I said, informed my research questions, shaped my ethnography, my field interactions and observations. So, so like one of the um, earliest questions <clears throat> that I was forced to face when I began ethnography in the conflict areas of the Northeast was, uh, however, you know, uh, why, why is it that um, I, as a member of the dominant Ahomia community of Assam, why was I using a method of study that, by all accounts, was embedded in the colonial enterprise, right? Uh, I mean, you have all these ethnographies by... Um, colonial administrators, by Christian missionaries. They, they, they wrote these ethnographies of the indigenous communities, and these were all disguised as, as uh, uh, you, know, uh, uh, you know, ethnographic uh, accounts. And they all came disguised as anthropologists. And I 
And I mean, I was, I was also, I grew up, you know, uh, amidst the social and political turmoil of the 1980s that intensified ethnic fragmentation in Assam. It catalyzed my own community's uh, neo-colonizing approach towards the other population groups. So who was I really? And, you know, why was I adopting this method? And then in the field, I engaged with people who saw me of course, as a representative of my own community, and I was subjected to a lot of suspicion and treated with circumspection. Um, there was this, uh, I remember this one instance where a borough politician who was formerly a militant um, uh, accused me of trying to rake up old issues and reopen um, wounds that were now healed. So uh, a, lot of, a lot of that happened. And, and um, it, in many cases, it, it took me... Um, time, a lot of effort to break through this barrier of suspicion, uh, this feeling of being othered, scrutinized again uh, through the neocolonizer's gaze. But I found that, you know, all it required was an appreciation uh, and a non-judgmental participation in the ways of life of the people. And uh, I was given access. I was, uh, you know, welcomed into the communities. And, and it was then that I really began to comprehend the level of discrimination and degradation that many of the ethnic and migrant communities of Assam have been subjected to for centuries. And, and um, you know, at that instance, ethnography actually became a means of effecting ethnic reconciliation for me. So, um, you know, uh, I, I was saying earlier about access and how it is key in ethnography, but uh, how difficult also it is in fragmented and uh, conflict-habituated societies like um, Assam. So once one is granted, uh, you know, granted uh, access, like, like I was, now the question comes up, how can you truly represent the uh, communities, the dynamic and conflicting natures of the communities that you are studying? Uh, and... Uh, Representation is also loaded, right? So, so how did I use this uh, as a means of uh, effecting ethnic reconciliation? I, I, how could I use it? So that was a question that I grappled with constantly. And um, one of the um, you know, answers that I found for myself is that rather than ventriloquizing, right, rather than speaking for, feminist ethnography would give me the uh, resources to create a space you know, for uh, the marginalized voices to be heard. So that was one of the reasons why I uh, adopted this approach. And then, of course, you know, the question of power is always there. Uh, it informs any relationship between the researcher and the researched. So um, as an ethnographer, I had to think about uh, that too. And uh, especially I was also thinking about, you know, uh, my own, uh, the question of my own impartiality, my own positionality. It comes from my own positionality, right? So uh, for instance, when I was interacting with, um, let's say, Indian security personnel, some of them would have been in charge of counterinsurgency operations during the peak of militancy. Uh, like all families in Assam have lost people to militancy, uh, to, to counterinsurgency operations. 
And, uh, you know, I have lived with the childhood trauma, uh, these traumatic memories of women raped and killed. While we were walking to school, we were always told to not look up you know, uh, do not look up at the passing military vehicles. Uh, you might, you know, be, uh, you know, you might become one of the women who are raped and killed, actually. So, and I would have to keep reminding myself of, of, of you know, how this was actually, um, you know, a system, not one person uh, or not a particular person or persons who, was, who had to be held responsible or accountable for this. So all of this came into my uh, process and um, I was forced to revisit uh, my trauma. I was forced to revisit my politics through reflexivity and feminist objectivity. And, and all of this, I think, uh, really enriched my thinking and my research. So, um, you know, I returned, uh, when I returned to Assam to work on this book after being on the mainland for about 15 years, I thought I was, uh, you know, suitably equipped with these tools. And um, then I was in Assam for like five years after that. And then I realized that uh, no, I, I needed that physical distance again. And so I started writing this book in the United States. But then again, to finish it, I had to come back to Assam. So well, the reason I'm saying this is because this whole question of positionality keeps coming up, this whole question of reflexivity and how you use ethnography and autoethnography in order to, you know, uh, to, to, to look at uh, the major questions and the problems in your research. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it... <clears throat> a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay, so uh, what would be some of the major theoretical and conceptual frameworks within which, you know, you can locate your research? We talked about the methods, but what about the theory and concepts? So this book actually belongs in the very slim literature there is on conflict habituation in, uh, within peace and conflict studies. So it studies what happens when um, societies and communities which are exposed to protracted violence, um, protracted conflicts, uh, where there's you know, prolonged militarization, there's uh, constant human rights abuse, extrajudicial killings, and, and people are exposed to different forms of personal and political violences that are perpetrated with impunity. What happens to those communities? Right. And, and uh, you know, even when these active conflicts and violent confrontations are contained, you know, the, these confrontations between, say, the state and non-state actors, between one community and another community, when these violences are contained through signing peace treaties, ceasefire agreements, violence still persists. It remains in the structures, the cultures, because, you know, those are not changed. It's only uh, the direct violence that has been addressed or, and, and uh, de-escalated. So violence continues to mutate. It, it becomes um, part of 
uh, everyday life. It is, uh, it becomes personal, it's political, it happens at home, in public spaces, uh, it becomes normalized, it becomes like a habitual way of functioning or operating for the people in the conflict zone. And um, so when you are deeply submerged in it, when you are, you, you are in this, you know, caught up in this web of violence, how do you recognize your culpability? How do you uh, recognize your complicity even, or, or even, you know, in a sense, your victimhood? And how do you resist? How do you break away from this web and bring about uh, change, social transformation, positive organic peace? So that is what the book elaborates on, and it uses um, Assam as a, as a textbook uh, example of a conflict-habituated society where, you know, we have to confront the existing reality of everyday violence, the brutalization, and the dehumanization, and then work towards peace. And um, it argues, of course, that this peace has to be a feminist peace because positive peace or peace as an organic way of life is feminist peace. It is, it is peace that is based on social justice. Uh, it's based on equitable distribution of power and access. It is intersectional. Right? It, is, it is not a condition where, let's say, um, one community wins their rights through political agitations and social movements, and, and they form their own government, and then they marginalize other communities. So it, it is where every individual of every community enjoys their rights, um, irrespective of caste, class, gender, ethnicity, or place of origin. And, and every marginalized community stands in solidarity with the other. So, you know, the, the problem is, of course, determining how you get there from the conflict habituation. And because uh, my book addresses this problem and, and explores this possibility in the specific context of Assam, it, it finds a home within the emerging literature on feminist peace research. So feminist peace research is this emergent um, field within uh, peace and conflict studies. And it was um, actually formalized as recently as 2016. And uh, I think the first handbook of conflict, um, first handbook of um, peace, uh, feminist peace research was published in 2020. And my book is the first in Rutledge's uh, series on advances in feminist peace research. Okay, so uh, Uddipana, uh, how does one use the gendered look to understand both horizontal and vertical conflicts? If you could, you know, give a few examples. Sure. I, I talk about these horizontal and vertical conflicts a lot in the book. Let me start by talking about, you know, uh, gendered conflicts. So, um, all social relationships that are based on uh, hierarchies, uh, on, on mutually exclusive binaries, you know, because binaries depend on a dichotomous understanding of the world. So all such relationships are gendered. And, and because they are hierarchical, because they are mutually exclusive, they facilitate uh, violence at multiple levels in, in these structures and the systems and the cultures. And, and they can also manifest as direct violence. So... Um, when there are political conflicts between, uh, say, diverse communities living in a state and, and between the communities and the state itself, 
these are also informed by the many violences because um, you know such such conflicts they result from and they create dichotomous relationships and these are characterized by hierarchies of uh, subordination or superordination uh, there are structural inequalities there's unequal access to power resources and of course you know the violent responses by both state and non-state actors. So this is why, like I say, they lend themselves to a gendered analysis. To um, put it another way, this is why they should be subjected to a gendered analysis because they are, uh, they, they are, they are dichotomous binary relationships and uh, they are about power and how power operates in conflict situations both uh, horizont uh, horizontally and vertically. Um, let me illustrate that by taking by, by talking very briefly about uh, Assam's conflicts. So, the sub-nationalist and ethno-nationalist communities in Assam are in conflict with the Indian state. Many of them are in conflict with each other. These are vertical, and uh, I mean these are the vertical and horizontal conflicts that I speak about. And and. I uh, take a gendered look at horizontal conflicts between sub- and ethno-nationalist groups and the concurrent vertical ones between these groups and the state. So the Indo-Assam conflict, for instance, or the Ohomiya-Boro conflict. And um, a gendered analysis explores the relationships of power and how these relationships and, and of course, the hegemonies of masculinity how, how they engage and negotiate with each other, how they collide with and co-opt each other, and finally, how they mutate and regenerate in the course of political conflicts. And, and they're doing this constantly. Uh, they're doing this because power is not top-down. It, it, it does not flow vertically, nor does it just you know simply flow laterally. It's, it's a matrix. It's always flowing and, and it's always in flux. So there's constant negotiation and mutation, as I said, and there's this, this very in, intricate interrelationship between the centers of power and the margins, because marginality and uh, centrality are also relational. To um, give you a less abstract explanation of this, uh, you know, and, and let's go back to the Ohomiya-Boro relationship. So in the late 1970s and the early 80s, uh, Assam saw this tremendous you know, civil uprising against the Indian state called the Ohomandolan or the Assam movement. Um, so the neo-colonizing approach of the Indian state, it's, uh, it's, it's apathy towards the post-colonial realities of you know, this transnational territory that was now part of, uh, you know, India. And, and, and there was this blatant disregard of the political and ethnic aspirations of the people in this uh, region. These were, these were some of the reasons why the people of the peripheral or marginalized state, um, why they rose in civil disobedience against the Indian state. So when the movement ended, however, in 1985, uh, the dominant Ahomia people gained some political power. But then, um, in 1987, the Boro movement started because the Boro people were unhappy with the Ohomia dominance now, and um, the Ohomia rulers used the same strategies of oppression against the Boro people as the Indian state has, you know, had earlier used against them. So such 
examples of, um, you know, like uh, changing margins and changing centers, they are everywhere in multi-ethnic societies globally. So after the Boros got their own autonomous territory, the non-Boros had to resist further uh, marginalization. You know? so, so, you, so you see, these margins keep changing, positions of marginality, uh, centrality, uh, relational. If we, caught up, uh, if, if we get caught up in studying specific situations and, and we try to find solutions based on that, um, we might have limited success. But if we looked at how power operates as a matrix and how we need to address the flux within this matrix, we might perhaps find a more sustainable solution. And that's what I explore in my book. Right. So uh, how is power negotiated in potential conflict situations? Again, if you could talk, giving a few examples. Um, so, like I said uh, earlier, the centers and the margins are not static, right? They are shifting, they are relational, and especially in multi-ethnic, multicultural locations like Assam, uh, positions of centrality and marginal- marginality are flexible. Right? They are always uh, in flux. And, and uh, in, in such situations, when you look at such societies, there are really no permanent victors or permanent victims. And there's no one entity, one individual, or one institution that has monopoly of force or subservience. So the need here is to identify the hegemonic structures that actually perpetuate marginality. So going back to the example of um, Assam, Assam and, and, and of course, uh, you know, the whole of Northeast actually is the periphery. Um, in relation to the India, Indian mainland. And within this region, Assam was shaped as the center of power ever since the British rulers constructed it as a province. Now, because the people here, uh, you know, they most closely resembled uh, the, the, the colonizers' Indian subjects, when they came to the Northeast 100 years after they had taken over the rest of India, what they did was they, they turned to the dominant Ahomia Hindu autochthonous people to represent all the other communities of Assam. But um, yeah, the Ahomia people were also marginal. They were a small people in a great in in the great Indian nation, and and, and this was um, and they, they felt this especially after the British withdrew and after Assam became uh, or remained a part of India. So. In the effort to um, forge a distinctive identity within this broader Indian nation, what they did was they, they started drawing upon the um, you know, strength of the uh, non-Aryan primitive tribes, as they called them, and uh, they, they forged a sub-nationalist identity uh, that was, you know, like they say, same, same, but different. Meanwhile, what was happening was that... Um, Within the periphery, these uh, quote-unquote non-Aryan indigenous communities were uh, expected to fall in line and they were expected to follow the lead of the dominant Ahomia community. So the tribal or indigenous communities, um, actually, if you uh, look back at history, at that moment in time, when the Indian nation was, uh, Indian uh, nation state was being formed, they also threw in their lot and they gave the uh, nation building uh, project a chance. 
So many indigenous leaders aligned uh, themselves with the Ohomia leadership. Uh, of course, this is not to say that there weren't divergent views, but you know they became more prominent eventually. But at the time when the Northeast um, was being, you know, yoked to India, there were uh, distinctive and even oppos- uh, opposing ways of in which the, the the peripheries within the Northeast negotiated and interacted with, and and uh, you know the way they responded to the hegemony of the Indian state uh, that was on the mainland. And within the periphery, inside the Northeast, they were also doing the same, negotiating their position in, uh, uh, you know, in uh, respect to, uh, uh, to the dominant community, uh, dominant Ahamia leadership in Assam. So what was happening was um, the dominant Ahomia, they had established themselves as the center of the periphery, right? And, and they had done this by aligning themselves with the hegemony of the mainlanders. Um, and within the periphery, they were self-constructing as the benign uh, patriarchs at the top of the periphery's ethnic hierarchy. But then, a few years down the line, their centrality was also contested. Uh, I've been through that history um, a while back. And, and uh, you know, there were ethnic fragmentations and fissures between the communities, which became uh, more, uh, more apparent. There was the, uh, you know, there, there was uh, gradual intensification of the post-colonial competition over power, livelihood, resources, and so on. And the per- peripheries within the periphery started renegotiating with the multiple centers. So, um, you know, for example... The hill communities like the Nagas and the Mizos, they broke away from the uh, from Assam and they created their own states. But that is not the end of the story. You know, <laughs> while this was happening, while the uh, marginalized constituencies of the periphery were challenging the hegemony of the dominant Ahomea-speaking community, the dominant community itself was also forced to raise uh, you know, these allegations of exploitation of resources, lack of employment and development, uh, geographical isolation, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, against the mainland. So this is where um, you know the uh, six-year-long Ahomandolon broke out in in 1979. So initially, all indigenous and autochthonous people of Assam participated in the Andolon, in the Ahomandolon, and uh, they were all equally affected, right? Uh, they were all equally uh, discontented. But then, as I had said earlier, the dominant Ahomia community failed to take into consideration the ethnic aspirations of these communities, um, or, or even, you know, the rights of the migrant communities as the Assam movement progressed. So they adopted this sons of the soil ideology, which kind of excluded both documented and undocumented migrants. And um, then there was violence in certain pockets. There were attacks against uh, migrant communities. There were attacks against indigenous and ethnic communities. And immediately after the Ahomandolon, the Boro movement was launched. And and, uh, subsequently, almost all the other communities of Assam rose in revolt against the Ahomia-speaking political leadership. So um, this is how, you know, the interconnections and the interrelationships between the peripheral communities mutate as much as, you know, those between the periphery and the core. Consequently, power circulates constantly and and, um, all the components of this network are simultaneously undergoing and exercising this power, right? So... Like I said earlier, in order to find solutions to these uh, conflict situations, um, 
we have to uh, look at how power operates and we have to look at how this agency, you know, uh, these uh, agency works within these uh, networks. So such agency is often overlooked. So when we, 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 we what traditional peacemaking uh, methods impose peace from above. It's a centralized effort, so it does not hold. So what my book does, on the other hand, is to argue that um, for sustainable peace in societies experiencing intractable conflict, there must be a willingness to break the constant pulls of, uh, you know, exerting power over and to, to develop an appreciation for power with Okay, so I had forgot to unmute myself. Uh, well, <laughs> how do uh, women and migrant communities engage with other marginalized entities and patriarchies of power in Assam? Um, this this links back to my um, earlier observation, uh, which I made just now, about uh, you know um, peace with you know appreciating peace with. So so our um, history in Assam is, is a history of violence, right? So uh, to, to move out of that violence, um, what I argue is that the marginalized people must work together and they must make peace mutually. So the uh, people of Assam need to confront their violent history and they have to hold themselves accountable as perpetrators if they are to you know, heal collectively, if they are to reconcile with each other, and if they are to move past their victimhood. So they must talk about the hate crimes and killings at, say, Nelly, at Pulung Sapori, at Kaupur, Khobrabari, and, and in countless other places where different indigenous and autochthonous communities were variously involved. But at the same time, they also need to challenge and, and they need to change the hyper-masculinist, the, the apathetic systems of government that, that, that are constantly eroding compassion, that are preventing these communities from standing together in sisterhood and solidarity. Politics, uh, you know, it's built upon people's emotions and governments are all about people. So instead of focusing only on power, on security, on order, the people must ensure that successive governments create policies that also address human suffering. And, and such um, humane policies are also, you know, they, they, are, they are essential to ensuring human security. So they have a critical role to play in state security, for example. Um, if we were to think in terms of the NRC, the National Register of Citizens and the protests against the Citizenship Amendment Act um, in 2019. So the current global narrative around that is one of anti-Muslim politics and polemics in a sense. This does not encompass the on-ground realities, it, it, but it does have the potential to turn global hate towards Assam and, and to make it vulnerable to external threats. So compassion towards marginalized communities and policies which alleviate their sufferings, all of these can overturn these narratives and counter these threats. And um, when we are talking about such policies, they can be formulated um, only when people understand and accept that you know, 
human history is one of migration. There's uh, always been population movement. And, and all are subject to shifting and arbitrary political boundaries. So some indigenous communities, um, for example, if, if you look at, um, you know, Karbi uh, folklore, they, they still sing of ancient migrations. There are many Hindu Ohomia families, for instance, who trace their uh, origins back to the mainland, uh, you know, and, and these ties are not too ancient. You know. So in this age of global mobility, uh, Protecting state borders cannot preclude the protection of migrants, refugees, non-citizens, and um, everybody must stand up as a community to demand policies that uphold the dignity, equity, basic human rights for, for all, irrespective of gender, origin, ethnicity, citizenship status, um, whatever it is. But um, sadly, I do not see that happening much. Now, uh, my research for the book took me into the marginalized spaces occupied by women and migrant communities. So these are the two marginal um, constituencies in the conflict um, zone that I look at most closely. And, and, I, I, uh, and I looked at uh, you know, um, uh, ways in which, uh, say, women across ethnic divides are making peace together or how the Muslim migrant community are resisting their oppression and they're standing in solidarity within their community to work with each other. And that is great. That is um, something that needs to be nurtured. But it needs also to extend across the boundaries. And as I said, all marginalized constituencies will have to uh, reflect and they have to stand together in sisterhood and allyship. Do you think that, you know, you have been able to reconstruct a gendered analysis of Assam's ethno-nationalist conflicts? Because that is the goal of the book, you know, that you begin with. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, that is my goal. And I uh, hope I have been able to do that because, you know, that was a gap uh, that I saw when I started off. Um, I, I looked at the uh, literature um, on conflict that's out there. And there is this amazingly strong body of literature about women's roles and women's agencies. Uh, and there's more being done. There's more being written on um, women as peacemakers, uh, women as perpetrators, um, you know, the women who are rebels. I have myself worked on that uh, before I started working on this book. And I, I felt that we needed to, um, you know, extend this conversation. It is great that we have uh, these, the, the, this literature, which is engendered, you know, which is uh, which which counters the androcentrism of uh, most of our existing conflict literature. But then um, that's women's studies, right? Which is which is equally important, which is equally relevant, but unless you understand what makes women women or, or, or what subjects them to the kind of um, aggressive machismo that relegates them to these marginalized, violent, violated spaces. Um, in other words, unless, unless you understand the gendered aspect of conflict and violence and, and how this creates margins and, and what shapes masculinity or informs hyper-masculinist violence in these spaces, 
how do you change women's lots, right? How do you change uh, the lot of all marginalized constituencies? How do you end violence, whether it is against men or women or, or any other gender besides? How do you bring peace and, and equity and social transformation? And that is where I think my uh, book comes in. And um, I am really hoping that there will be more robust discussions on the gendered uh, aspect of conflict in the Northeast in the coming days, which will focus not only on women, but uh, other marginalized entities like the migrants, for instance. Right. I, I sincerely hope so as well. Last question. What do you think is the future scope of research in this area? Um, if I were to think in terms of uh, peace and conflict research in the Northeast or even, uh, you know, the gendered literature um, on peace and conflict and uh, within uh, and also beyond feminist peace research, this could... Uh, and I think should um, go in many different ways because um, peace research itself as a field has grown from or has moved from, uh, you know, uh, like thinking in terms of liberal peace to um, talking about uh, conflict transformation instead, right? Conflict transformation, social uh, justice uh, and so on. And that transitioned uh, very naturally to feminist uh, peace research. But um, in the future, I'm hoping that uh, there will be more um, reliance on counter-normative ap approaches, like, say, queer peace building. That's something that is um, even more recent than feminist peace research, and it's um, coming up, uh, you know, uh, in a robust way. And it is some, it, it is a lens that um, is, I think essential to studying uh, marginalized communities and, and violences in marginalized spaces. Um, and then there is also, for example, the need to talk about decolonized peace or decolonizing peace studies. So where my book ends, um, actually, that is where my project of studying um, decolonized peace begins, because I talk about um, how one of the ways in which we can uh, make peace uh, in conflict-habituated societies is to reclaim our individual ways of life, you know, the, the kind of uh, ways of uh, living which uh, were often denigrated by the, the colonizers and then, of course, by the, uh, you know, uh, in the post-colonial times as well. Um, and, and when I do this, I'm thinking about, uh, for example, say the lahe lahe way of life in Assam, which is, uh, you know, translated as slowly, but it's, uh, it, is, it can also be translated as gently, uh, right, unhurriedly. And in the day and age when everywhere, um, you know, we are talking about, say, slow fashion or slow scholarship, about slowing down, right, in order to to, to be at peace with ourselves and with the planet, we have to think about reclaiming these indigenous ways of life. And um, I want to look at that more closely in the future. And as I was, uh, there was this conversation that I was having some time back about the theoretical framework, uh, which, uh, you know, uh, 
framework that will kind of hold up this uh, inquiry. And I have not been able to find much um, on slow peace or on these indigenous ways of life as means of making peace. So, you know, maybe the decolonization uh, or the decolonizing project uh, of the future could be theorizing from the experience of the uh, local communities, of the indigenous communities um, around us. And in fact, that is what decolonization is, right? Uh, testing the existing um, theories against uh, lived realities and then creating our own new uh, theories which um, you know, which which reflect our ways of life more authentically. So yeah, there is, I see a lot of scope um, for future research in this area. And I really um, fervently hope that uh, this work is carried forward. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for this engaging conversation and for answering all my questions so well. I wish that a lot of more people read the book. And thank you once again, Uddipana. Thank you so much, Rituparna. I hope people do read the book. Yes, Thank you. yes.